Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Acadia Broadcasting System. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. David, we've been wanting to do an in-depth podcast on uh, healthcare. Uh, we had that opportunity uh, with the, our conversation uh, with Karen Oldfield, the CEO of the Nova Scotia Health Authority. Uh, her position is termed intermed, not permanent. And I, I want to start there because I think one of the really important decisions that the government made uh, upon taking power and making a promise to fix health care is they decided that they weren't going to do the same old approach to looking at health care, which is leave it to the insiders to see what they could fix. They chose an outsider who had no preconceived ideas and an open mind to go in and take a look at the system. And that's what Karen Oldfield has done. She's come under some some criticism because she is an outsider, but they're coming from the user suspects, the people from inside or, or unions who don't like somebody messing with their system. But as our conversation with Karen shows, you know, you can get a lot of stuff done and a lot of innovation brought into the system when you have a fresh look. And that's what Karen brings to that job. Yeah, it's always a risky decision to bring somebody in from a completely uh, unrelated industry that has no sector-specific knowledge. But I think the listeners are going to find when they listen to this conversation that she has a really strong sense of what she wants to do with the system. And she's making a number of very, very consequential reforms. And what appreci- what I appreciate the most is that she's passionate about it, right? She's, she's very excited about about driving change in the Nova Scotia healthcare system. So I think you're right. In this case, it was a good decision. And the other thing that uh, she mentioned, which I personally have been advocating forever, is uh, the use of metrics to prove that you're actually performing as you promised. And so, you know, the province has developed a dashboard where everybody can go in and see what the status is of wait times on all the surgeries that uh, are available for tracking. And, and, and as she said to us, you know, it's not about being average, it's by being in the top tier of health delivery. That's her goal. And believe me, I don't think we've had that goal in Atlantic Canada ever to be in the top tier. We just want to be average. It's the old thing. Oh, can we be average? Sure, we can be average, but can we be better than average? And she has that attitude. That's great, isn't it? It is, but I'm a little more uh, sanguine than you. Like if, if you're ninth, I prefer trying to get to eighth or seventh than, rather than jump all the way to one, but I, I wish her all the best. No, no, but this is the point that we have in Atlantic Canada. I see this so often. We only, we feel we're doing well if we can be average. You know, why can't we aspire to be leaders? And by the way, the province of Nova Scotia is a leader now in a number of aspects with regard to healthcare using pharmacists to deliver health care in this province. That is a big deal. And, you know, they're already talking about using other other professionals who are not part of the current uh, health care system. You know, that, uh, that, that expands the delivery uh, opportunity. And, uh, and, you know, it's encouraging. Uh, the, the fact that, you know, they, they just came out with a new uh, program called Your Health, where you, you have access to all your uh, health records, and you become your own manager of your own health. And, and you actually have access to a medical you know, team, not just a doctor. You know, that's all 
that's all really great, I think, in terms of improving uh, the healthcare delivery system uh, in, in Canada. Yep, and the Health Innovation Hub that she talks about is another important uh, way to drive innovation. You take challenges, you take opportunities, and you have a little test environment to see if they can work. So there does seem to be a real focus on how we innovate, how we deliver healthcare and the services that we offer. And, and again, those things might take a little time, but I think, uh, I think it, it, we, we need to expand the conversation away from just emergency rooms and family doctors to a more holistic understanding of what's going on in the healthcare system. Yeah, and one final point before we uh, get into the conversation with Karen is that they're, they're establishing urgent care centers around the province to take uh, take and streamline some of the traffic going to emergency uh, rooms. And in fact, they're converting some emergency rooms where they had trouble staffing them to these urgent care uh, centers. This is a model that's used in the U.S. Uh, quite effectively, and, and that will take the pressure off eventually em- emergency uh, rooms. You know, and those those rooms really should be for people who have life threatening. Uh, circumstances. And so that's that to me is another improvement to the healthcare system. So this is a longer than normal conversation, folks. Uh, but if you're interested in, in, in the work that's being done in the province of Nova Scotia to improve healthcare and, uh, and, and, and some of the innovation that's going on here, I think you'll find this worth listening to. So here's our conversation with Karen Oldfield, CEO of the um, Healthcare Authority in Nova Scotia. We are pleased to welcome Karen Oldfield, the CEO of Nova Scotia Health, uh, to the Insights Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Karen. Hi, Don. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. Karen, before we get into your current role, we'd like you to tell our listeners a little bit about your career path. You've had an interesting career. Can you tell us where you got started and how you ended up ultimately in this role as CEO of the uh, of the Health Authority? Sure thing. Well, I'm a hometown girl, uh, born and bred in Halifax, and um, I went to St. Mary's, then to Dalhousie for my law degree. Practiced at McGinnis Cooper um, for 15 years, so... I had uh, I, I really enjoyed my practice, my time at the firm, and it gave me an opportunity to get involved in a number of different things. And one of which was uh, I had a chance at a fairly early age to get involved in a provincial political campaign, which then led me to um, a seat at the table, so to speak. And I was the first uh, chief of staff for uh, Premier Dr. John Hamm which, uh, you know, I guess whet my appetite a little bit. But in particular, what it told me was it was going to be very difficult for me to go back to a single file with a single client as opposed to taking a broader view of our province and our country. And so, you know, eventually that led me to um, accepting a role at the Halifax Port Authority where I served as the president and CEO for... 18 years and uh, oversaw a period of growth at the port and really spent a great deal of time bringing the port into the community, so to speak, and and forging partnerships that have put our port and our port city on a, on a global stage. And then I retired. And so uh, that didn't last too long, about 18 months. 
through the early parts of COVID, and then I had an opportunity to come back and serve the province, and I was um, pleased to, to be in a position at that time to be able to serve, and so here I am. So we had Premier Houston on this podcast, and of course his government was elected on the promise to fix health care. It was a huge um, focus of his campaign, and one of the first things they did was to fire uh, the old CEO and the board of directors and bring on y- yourself. Can you tell us how that, what that transition was like? Like, how, how did you go from being CEO of the Port Authority to, to run the healthcare system? There's so, there are many skills um, which a CEO has which can be transferable from sector to sector. And that would include, you know, just basic leadership skills and pulling a team together and focusing on the things that can be done and need to be done and so forth. I will not lie. It's a big uh, step going from, you know, CEO of the Port Authority to CEO of our healthcare system, particularly in a scenario where uh, so much of the government's agenda was focused on the fixing of healthcare. So it uh, it was daunting, and you know I really had to look pretty deep inside to to determine if I had the guts, and the energy, and the ability to work with people and to build the partnerships that I would need to build to help to bring this system into the 21st century. So um, it was a deep look. You know, I obviously I answered yes, and I have not regretted it. In fact, I'm actually, I love it. Uh, I love what I do. And, you know, I have a lot of passion for the people and for their commitment, but also for just fixing these so many inefficiencies uh, which we have in our system. There's, there is a lot of low-hanging fruit. There's a lot of things with, that are hard to attain, but there's a lot of work that we can do to um, bring visible and meaningful results to Nova Scotians. Well, you know, Karen, I would argue that it was a great decision to bring an outsider into the healthcare system because the healthcare professionals were unable to fix the system from within. So, you know, as they say, um, a fresh look is probably what was needed, and you are certainly bringing that to that role for sure. No pressure. No, no, no pressure. (laughs) You know, I, I think it's a very important point because I don't have any baggage. I did not grow up in this system. I am looking at things differently. And, you know, frankly, my legal training has put me in a spot where, you know, I I seek the truth, I seek to learn, and I just keep asking questions until, you know, we think we're in a pretty good spot in terms of having the information required to move forward. So I try to do that in a congenial, collaborative way. Um, And that's, I think, what gets you to progress. Now, it's been about two years, I think, since you took over the leadership role of uh, the Nova Scotia Health Authority. I want to start by just uh, making sure people understand the size of the health system in in Nova Scotia. Can you give us an idea of what the budget was when you took over as CEO and maybe what the budget is today? And also, what percent does that represent of the province's annual budget? Yes. Our budget, so... Let's split it into Nova Scotia Health, the IWK, the Department of Health, and Seniors and Long-Term Care because there's really, you know, those four pillars that comprise of the entire system. And in, in the Department of Health would also include the Office of Mental Health and Addictions. So, you know, when you, that's kind of the whole package. 
But if I look at my part, which is Nova Scotia Health, the acute care system, our budget when I took over was like 2.2, 2.3 billion. In 21-22, it was 2.5 billion, and uh, this fiscal year, it is just over 3 billion. So there's been a significant investment in our system. Now, you know, part of that increase would include inflation this past year. So it's not all investment, but the primary part of it is real dollar investment. Then if we look at the whole system, so the other departments, as I mentioned, uh, seniors long-term care, IWK, the um, uh, mental health and addictions, you know, that entire budget, including ours, it's bumping up. It's bumping up to 7, 7B, so $7 billion. And that is roughly, it's not quite, it's, I think the last time I looked, it was like 48.6%-ish of the uh, provincial, of the provincial um, spending. And, you know, our, our overall is uh, about $14 billion in this province. So the only, you know, I would say it's interesting because when I look back to my first stint, which was, you know, 1990, 2000, it was under 50%, but you, it, it was starting to bump up. I think at that time it was about 43, 44%. So, you know, that's where we've come over that, let's just say, 23 years-ish. Yeah, and, you know, that's a number that probably uh, over the long term has to come down, obviously, I think, uh, to in order to be able to have other things finance, right? Yeah. Right? I mean, you, you want schools. You know, right. you, 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 we need things, we need roads, we need other services, we need yeah. education, we need our universities to be very strong in this province. And, you know, we could go on because to, to, be, to be a magnet uh, for, you know, a growing population, you have to have things that people are looking for. And that includes healthcare, but healthcare is certainly not the only thing, nor can it be. Yeah. It's an important message for people to Very understand that, that we're, we're reinvesting now, but hopefully it stabilizes uh, at a lower level at some point. Uh, t tell us how many people in total are employed in the healthcare across the province, and maybe of that number, uh, how many are in frontline positions uh, like uh, long-term care workers, nurses, doctors, that sort of thing? So... The Nova Scotia Health Authority itself, we have approximately 45,000 people altogether. Whoa, okay, really? that's, just, that's just Nova Scotia Health Authority. But understand, you know, that would include our staff, our physicians, our researchers, our volunteers. It's, it's the whole gamut. I could probably get that down to maybe 25, 26,000 if I took out some of the extraneous. Okay, so, so frontline... Frontline, um, if we take that group, would be well. Let's just do the math. The admin, yeah, it's about it's about um, two thirds. Two thirds would be what I would consider to be you know frontline per se. Um, that doesn't include all of our CCAs, so you know there, that's another tranche uh, beyond the province that would be part of seniors and long term care. Uh, and, you know, I don't have a number for that. I'd have to get that. I tried to check today, but I just didn't grasp it. So, you know, that's a big number. Not not 45,000, but it's still, it's still a good number. So you're talking about a very significant part of our um, 
population, which is working in some way, shape, or form in relation to healthcare. Interestingly enough, and you'd appreciate this, but one of the first things I did uh, when I came to Nova Scotia Health was to actually do an economic impact study because I wanted to know, you know, what's the upside? Like we talk about them, all the money that we spend in the system, but what's the upside? And what does that mean in every community around our province where there is a healthcare uh, worker or clinic or or health center or what have you and um, and that's actually kind of an interesting story too and it's a different way to look at health so I would argue that health health care health system is probably you know the biggest economic generator that we have in our province and we need to be looking at our system for the upside and how to leverage those people, the technology, the ideas, the creativity, instead of just thinking about healthcare as, you know, uh, on the expenditure side. Yeah, so I, I did a similar analysis in New Brunswick, and two thirds of all New Brunswick communities had at least one healthcare facility, and healthcare was yeah. the largest employer right. in over 200 New Brunswick communities. And the other thing, I don't know if you guys did this, Karen, but uh, for every dollar of healthcare spending by the government, about 25 cents was raised in provincial and local tax revenue. Yeah, we did do that. So it's also, you know, it's a big driver of tax revenue. It's a really big driver, and we and sometimes we forget that. And you know, at some point in the questions, I'm going to come back to that because of what we were able to do with our pure purchasing power, which has never really been looked at before on the upside. So how we procure, etc. So we can come back to that. Super. So we want to talk to you a little bit, a little bit about what you're actually doing. Uh, you have developed an action plan to address the problems with the healthcare system in the province. Can you tell us a little bit about your main focus and key actions? And we'll unpack a lot of that in subsequent questions. Yeah, sure thing. So, you know, I was, I, I'm new to healthcare, obviously, two years and two months, so to speak. Um, it was new to me that there was no particular strategy to you know act as our north stars or some of our goalposts in the system so one of the first things that the health leadership team uh, set out to do was to establish some kind of a, a strategy and so we did that following the premier's uh, healthcare speak up for healthcare tour which took place in September of, of uh, 2021 and that was an opportunity for the health leadership team so that's me Janet Davidson Dr. Kevin Oral um, the deputy Janine Lagasse and the minister uh, minister Michelle Thompson we were able to go uh, with the premier around the province uh, really to talk to frontline healthcare workers and it was a very important time for me um, Firstly, it was important because my, my very first stop, my first pit stop was in Neal's Harbor. And how beneficial it was to be in one of the most rural communities in our entire province and understanding the challenges, what they were talking about every day, what they were dealing with every day, from the really big to the really little. And um, I, I will be eternally grateful for having been able to start my journey if you like my health journey uh, with that lens because when you live in Halifax you're in Halifax you're talking to Halifax like Halifax is a very 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 different place than Neil's Harbor Cape Breton 
So uh, our conversations with healthcare workers across the province really w were, was the primary source uh, for many of the things which you find in Action for Health. That's online. People can see that at the Action for Health um, website. And there were really six main pillars that are set out in the Action for Health. Some of them are very aspirational. Some of them, you know, uh, yes, I will, I will say they are aspirational. Of the six, there are really three that I'm, I'll say I'm laser focused on. Okay, like I, I'm, my approach to moving the needle and to moving the bar and to accomplishing goals is to get very, very focused. And I find, for me anyway, the wider I go, the less I'm apt to achieve the change I am trying to achieve. So I rather get it done and go on to the next thing. So I usually work off of three or five. So my three, um, you know, shortly after the Speak Up for Healthcare tour and even today, the three that I am I'm driven to are um, number one would be access to primary care and all of the pathways that we've uh, incorporated and, and struck, so we can talk about that. The second one is the surgical wait list, and I know that's one of your questions, and we can talk about that. And the third one is our health human resources, our staffing, our people. And, you know, you can't do any of the foregoing or any of the things that we need to do to transform this system without the people. And, you know, Don's been talking about um, our population and the need for, for immigration and population for at least 20 years, probably more. And, you know, everything that you predicted, much like David Suzuki, it's coming true. You know, the, the days are, it's coming true. And uh, so healthcare is certainly no exception. And, and we really are not only in a war for talent, but, you know, uh, these folks are, are, are precious healthcare workers are, you know, they, they're leaving the profession uh, due to the demands, certainly the demands of COVID. There's so many things that we have to do to make it better to recruit and to retain our healthcare workers. So I'm, I'm very focused on that. So those are my kind of three, if I could, if I could put it that way. And I wake up and every day I think about those three and I, I go to bed thinking, okay, what did I do on each of those, those three things to move the needle today? Okay, so we'll come back and, and ask you a little bit more about all of those. Yeah. But, um, I just wanted to say, I think that's the first time I've ever heard Don Mills and David Suzuki mentioned in the same sentence. Well, he is another D. I, I just was thinking, I was thinking about it because I, I, saw, I saw a picture of David Suzuki and I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, since I was a, a small child, he was talking about some of the things that are actually coming true today yeah. and how prescient he was and how knowledgeable at that time. And here we are. And, and actually, I mean, Don's done the same thing on, on population for a long time. So speaking of Don, um, he has a suspicion <laughs> that the healthcare system has become too top-heavy and bureaucratic. <laughs> yeah. Is his complaint valid? And if so, what do you think needs to be done to address the, that issue? You know, I would say yes and no. So I, I looked at the numbers um, just because I wanted to satisfy myself that we weren't out of whack. And so where you look is the CHI-HI data. So there is, you know, it's a public site. We can all go on and have a look. And it does the ratio admin, you know, admin uh, costs and so forth. And so Nova Scotia's 
at or about national average, which is like 4%. And so, um, you know, it's actually 4.3%, and I think we're 4.2%. So we're, we're pretty much at national average. Now, the, the, the question is, so it's not Nova Scotia per se, it's that national average. Is that the right number? And, you know, coming from the outside into Nova Scotia, uh, you know, there's a lot of layers in our healthcare system. There are a lot of layers. And I, I do believe in my heart of heart of hearts that there are layers that could probably be changed around a little bit. Uh, whether they could completely be stripped out, that's a different question. Because a lot of our leaders, many of our leaders are clinical. They have a clinical background. So perhaps they have had a nursing background. So they're a critical care nurse or they're an ER nurse or they, are, they have been a physician or a specialist in our system. So it's the kind of corporate knowledge that you wouldn't necessarily just throw out the door. So we're not talking about, when we talk about, you know, admin, they're not necessarily uh, what I'll just call, you know, bureaucrats per se. That, that's not really the kind of administrative person that you would find in the health system. Rather, as I've said, they are clinical leaders and they have come from that background and they are very important to lead the way to the future. So, you know, yes, I could quibble. Could, could we get rid of a, a few folks? Maybe. But when we're talking about the numbers that we're talking about, it's not like stripping out wholesale. Uh, it, it would have to be very surgical, I guess is how I would put it. And um, so that's kind of my how I would approach it. Uh, but I do keep my eye on it because I don't want us to be creeping, you know, outside of the national average. But that's a mugs game. You know, the national average is the national average. It goes up to 5%. Does that mean we go up to 5%? You know, I don't think that's the answer either. I think the answer is to be as efficient as you possibly can and to put the partnerships in place and to develop the people and train the, the people to be looking at the efficiencies, finding the efficiencies and so forth to, you know, ultimately you want the dollars on the front line. One of the things that I like most about your plan is measuring progress and you provide a dashboard uh, for that purpose, which is updated uh, daily for people who don't know that. And, uh, you know, that transparency, I think, is really important because you have to prove your value, obviously. Uh, I want to talk about the key measures that you're tracking and, and can you report what, if any, progress has been made uh, so far on some of those key metrics? Yeah, so you're right. People can go on. They can have a look. And that was really important to um, Premier Houston and to the government, like just really important. And and important for those leaders in the healthcare system that, you know, that accountability is key. So, again, I'll, I'll go to a couple of that um, I follow very closely. And one, because I'm my overall goal is around access to care and human resources and surgical wait list. I'm always looking at the recruitment numbers, our, our physicians. And so, you know, we're doing well on physician recruitment. You can see that right on the on the dashboard. You know, we are making improvements year on year, so that's helpful. And that's both um, on the family doc side and also on the specialist side. And, you know, I don't know if you have seen this recently, but we have a young um, leader in Eastern Zone 
Her name is Michelle De Podesta, and for the past few weeks, she's been posting, uh, especially on LinkedIn, but other sites too, about a number of new physicians who have come to the Eastern Zone. So starting from Anaganish and into Cape Breton Island, specialists, uh, psychiatrists, family doctors, and they're coming from all over the place. And so I really like what she's doing because she's showing that person as an individual with their family and introducing them to the community. And once a person has a face and a name and, and they're, they're made human, it just seems to make all of these numbers become that much more important. So the, the doctors, yes, very definitely. A second one I look at all the time, of course, because going back to my goals, is the surgical wait list. So we're seeing, we do see some improvement there. I see improvement there. Um, and I promise, so we got to do this. Uh, um, and in particular, I'll just, you know, frame up two or three. It's one of the things that um, perhaps spurred on as a result of COVID, but definitely maintained uh, post-COVID, has been the ability of our surgeons, our, our orthopedic surgeons, to do same-day, next-day surgery at a much higher rate than they had been before. So these are hips and knees. And you know what, I've forgotten the number, but it's like, uh, I'll, I'll say it would have been far less than 100 uh, pre-pandemic. And that number has increased by like over 1,400%. So, so we're into the hundreds now and the thousands of same day, next day, which is, you know, that's an incredibly um, pertinent statistic because it's not just that more Nova Scotians are receiving their surgery. It shows the power of the innovation, the creativity, the culture change, the, just the change. So that to me is as meaningful as the actual number, although if I was one of those Nova Scotians having received that surgery, I sure would be happy. So that's positive. Um, the other thing which is really positive, for the first time in many years, we're actually hitting the national average, not across the board, but in many of our sites with respect to cataract surgery. And, you know, I can, I can go into both of those examples, hips and knees, and also cataract to explain why partnerships are helping us to, to get there. But, you know, hitting national average on cataract surgery is massive. Like helping people to be able to have, you know, um, sight-saving surgery to carry on with their life, whatever, uh, whether it's their work, their their hobbies, just their life. It's, um, you know, I'm really excited about that. Like that, that makes me happy. And I'll just give a third example too, which is we're starting to hit the mark here too, um, on endoscopies, not in central zone. So central zones on my, on my radar screen. And, uh, but you know, once we get outside of central zone, like we're hitting the mark on some of these things. So those are just three. We could go in there. There would be more, um, but what I'm excited about, as I've said, it's the innovation and the creativity and the culture change that we can do things differently. We can hit national average. We can exceed national average. And, and we are showing that we can do it in just those three examples.
Oh, I just want to follow up a bit on this. I mean, two of the big uh, public concerns related to healthcare in Nova Scotia, and indeed across the country, relate to, uh, to the two of your priorities: access to primary care and wait times for surgeries. Uh, you know, you know, you know. Are are there are the national standards wait time standards? First of all, this gets back to a previous point you make. Are they okay as they are today, or are they are already too high? Are they too high? Or are they too low? Or, or uh, low, low in terms of yeah. the number that get done. Yeah, exactly. So, so I mean, you, you might be hitting the average for the national, which is so what? which is which, which is not the right number. Correct. So you know exactly. Right. So like, it's a measurement, but that's that shouldn't be your cap for darn sure. Like your right. cap should be your cap should be the energy the creativity the culture of your group of surgeons or whatever the specialists um may be yeah. i mean the, the sky is the limit really as long as people have their shoulder to the wheel and this is how they think and this is how they want to work and sometimes it's uh, for which they are rewarded so right. I think that's a that you know we could definitely talk about that. I don't really have any specific feedback on whether that's the right number or not the right number. I mean, there's a lot of you know surgeons and clinicians that would obviously have a view on that, but but the way I look at it is you know we take our folks, we give them every tool, every we take down every hurdle they have, and we let them go like stink to to the best of their ability, and we may pay them accordingly. Yeah. So where where would you like Nova Scotia to rank in terms of wait times oh. in Canada? What do you have a goal? Is it just being average? I'm never. That's never a goal for me. <laughs> but that that's me. Okay, this is me. Um, no, I don't think average is where you know average is settling. Right. Okay, average is settling. So you know, if I look at the rank, I mean, would we not love to be in the top drawer? You know, and right. could we? Yes. Yes, we can. And, um, you know, we're seeing the investments certainly being made on the dollar side, but, but that's translating into people. And we can talk about recruitment and talk about some of the things that we're doing that, that, that put us in a position here in this province to recruit the very best and the very brightest specialists, physicians, other clinicians, researchers, and so forth. Like, we can go for gold. And I think that the the conditions are set up to help us do that. So we're going to come back and ask you about recruitment in a moment, because that's that's been an issue not only nationally, but internationally. We had Bernard Lord on, and he was telling us he was recruiting in Australia uh, for paramedics. So it is an interesting global challenge right now. But before we get there, we wanted to ask you about the private sector. Uh, you mentioned earlier a little bit about cataract surgery and orthopedic surgery. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about the role that the private sector can play in the delivery of public health care services? Sure. I think there's a couple of different roles. So I'll, I'll just give maybe two or three examples and then um, unpack it, so to speak. We have an excellent partnership right now uh, with for the for cataract surgery. And the... Uh, how that's working is is that surgery is being performed outside of a hospital setting, yet it is being paid for completely by the public system. We have 
and, and what that has allowed is for many more of these cataract surgeries to be done. That's one thing, one upside. But the other upside is it also means that the more complex uh, surgeries actually requiring OR time can be more quickly scheduled in the hospital. So it's kind of a twofer. The, so that's one example. A second example, um, I just love what we're seeing with respect to pharmacies. So we're certainly uh, leading nationally, if not beyond, in terms of some of the things that we've enabled our pharmacists to do and the way that we're working with our pharmacists. And I'll just give two examples. So there are two different pilots um, in place right now, one which was led through PANS, the Pharmacy Association of Nova Scotia, 26, I think, 26 uh, pharmacies across Nova Scotia that signed up to be in a position to dispense more drugs and to be able to see patients almost like a primary clinic and to be paid for that, and to be paid for it. The second example is a project which is conducted um, through the Lawton's group, and there are a number of Lawton's pharmacies in the province whereby they have attached a nurse practitioner to the practice, and so they've, they've really focused on uh, chronic disease management as kind of a niche. So, you know, it could be uh, diabetes, it could be high blood pressure, it could be, you know, something in that vein. And when we look at the, so the appointments are available, people can go on, they can book the appointments, and we do a lot of evaluation. When we, when we do a pilot or we do a test and try, as we, as we call it, we have a lot of data analytics to determine is it working, what's working, what's good, what's bad, and what's the impact. So, you know, we, we can show the data going back, you know, well over a year now for the Lawtons and I think uh, eight months for the PANS that would show how many people by going to those uh, pharmacies have avoided or diverted from the eMERGE because a lot of these folks would have otherwise shown up at the eMERGE department. So this is a really critical learning. The other thing we know, um, so that's, you know, we, we call that um, a, a private-public partnership with pharmacies and those dollars are paid uh, by the public purse. So um, I said I had a third example and now it's gone out of my head. So, oh, I think basically the third example, it, it's not purely a private partnership, but earlier this year, Nova Scotia Health uh, purchased Scotia Surgeries. And uh, it's, it's really put us in a spot where we can, you know, we have two more ORs, but it's also a place where we can do some of these same day, next days in a very highly efficient manner. And so, uh, you know, we did buy it. So I suppose it's fully part of the public system now, but in a sense, it's operating more like a business in terms of it's 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 highly efficient, and 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 so the OR would be set up to do um, things that only it needs to do. In other words, if you go into an OR in the hospital, it needs to be able to do many many things. So there's lots of different equipment, many different. Um, 
you know, instruments and so forth. Whereas at Scotia Surgery, it's very precise and and minimized to be able to be efficient. Can I so, ask you, if, uh, Karen? Can I ask you if we can anticipate more of this kind of activity in the future? Do you see more opportunity for the private sector to to play a role? I think so uh, for two reasons. First of all, you know. Like if we take a step back and we think about um, the assets that we have in this province, every pharmacy is an asset. Every chiropractor's clinic is an asset. Every, um, you know, you just name it, all of the different kinds of service providers. It's an osteo, it's, you know, a physio. Like there's many physio clinics and these are all private businesses. And there is no reason we cannot do the same thing that we've already uh, started with pharmacies. So if you can think of all of these different clinics, they already have their ground space, they already have their machinery, their equipment, their assets, their people, and so forth. So through partnership, they can help us, they can be our arms and legs. And if people ultimately get care faster in their community, then I think that's a win. One of the things that Bernard the Lord uh, brought up when we talked about private uh, delivered publicly funded, he's, uh, he said one of the benefits, of course, is that private sector has the ability to be more innovative because yeah. you know they're in a competitive world. Yeah. And uh, the, the example that you gave about cataract surgery is an interesting one. I, I spoke to somebody who did, had one eye done in, inside the hospital and one done at the clinic. He said it was a completely different experience, completely <laughs> yeah. different. And, and, and they, they didn't need as many resources. No. They were in and out quicker. It was a, it was a very professional, you know, they got it done on time. They, they raved about the private delivery side completely. Yeah. So that, that's, that's the thing that I wanted to emphasize for listeners that, you know, the lack of innovation in a, in a monopoly system is one of the big problems in terms of improving processes and delivery. So I, I know that you feel that way too. Oh, I definitely do. So can I just uh, actually, and thank you for that because you prompted me to my second point and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about this. But <clears throat> yes, it is monopoly. Yes, it's a heavy system. But we have, um, within the past year, we've opened the Health Innovation Hub. And the Health Innovation Hub is a place where clinicians, they don't have to be a clinician, but they could be a clinician, bring their ideas for innovation, match them with folks from the private sector to actually, you know, iterate, potentially figure out what that could look like, and we, we have a place right here for them to test the idea, try the idea in a clinical setting or wherever, and uh, we've got so many things going on in the hub. Um, we've got to find ways to get our heads around how many ideas are coming forward. Like it's actually a good thing and that would include clinical trials. There are companies coming to Nova Scotia from all over the world and what we're doing right now, I know it, I know it may not feel like this to Nova Scotians and finding the way to get some of this energy and some of these things that I'm talking about you know, in their minds and in so that they can see it and feel it is a, it's a high priority because there are many exciting things going on. The companies that are coming, the global leaders that are coming to look, 
to share, to learn, and to be, you know, it's, 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 it's really exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a bunch of surgeon friends, and they almost always tell me that they don't have enough operating time. You've yeah. heard that one before, yeah. I think. Yeah. What's, what's, what specifically have you done to address this issue? And what, what is the opportunity for increasing the number of surgeries with the current number of surgeons available? Well, I'm happy to report that, um, so I think you would have heard recently that the province landed on its new master agreement with um, physicians, uh, Doctors Nova Scotia. And one of the things uh, in the new master agreement was um, there's a, a, a new surgical access premium, and that's available to you know, for those who want to do some extra, work extra, get more time, more OR time. So I guess in a, in a roundabout way to say that we're using uh, the tools that we have available to actually incent and enable physicians to do more if they want to. Sometimes the roadblock, it's, it's, um, it's interesting. Like, you know, this is a good one because I ask a lot of questions around this because I see our ORs, like in my simple mind, I want our ORs, like that's an asset. And I would like to see that asset being used as much as possible in as efficient a manner as possible. I look at, I look at it and I say, okay, I, I see an OR and I see three opportunities in a day, the day, the night, and then the weekend. Like I, I look at our ORs with in, in different ways. Now, this is not how the healthcare system has looked at it, and it's not, you know, in fairness, um, not how our physicians have worked, not how our surgeons have worked, and definitely not the teams, not the surgical teams, so not the nursing staff and some of the other critical components. We, we did have for a period of time, uh, particularly in Nova Scotia, a shortage of anesthesiologists, which you know, pretty tough to be do getting your OR time if you don't have access to an anesthesiologist. So I do think that was one challenge. And uh, our, our Department of Anesthesiology has done a good job in recruiting. And as well, we're, we're training some family doctors to have additional skills so that they can do some, some forms of anesthetic as well as anesthesia technicians. So we're trying to round it out a little bit so that people have uh, the ability, they'll have the tools that they need, the team that they need to be able to to conduct more surgeries. But the other thing is um, it's just scheduling. There is a lot of uh, inefficiency around the scheduling and the use of ORs that once you dive into it, I mean it's I'm going to call it low-hanging fruit. Those may listen to this podcast and they may say, oh, my God, she doesn't know what she's talking about. However, it's this is where culture change and, and changed behavior becomes really important. And, you know, we have to make sure that we can use those ORs as efficiently as possible to serve our Nova Scotians. So I think we're doing better. We are doing better. I know that for a fact because we're looking at them across the board. And when somebody doesn't, you know, if, if there's a cancellation or somebody's not taking up their OR time, then we want to know why. Right. And just to answer the question, what's, what, what is the opportunity to increase the number of surgeries with the current number of surgeons? Do you have, a, do you have an estimate of what that possibly could be? Uh, 
I think we probably do. I can, I don't have it off the top of my head. I'm I'm sure that we do, John. So I could probably check that. In fact, I I'm quite certain we do. I just don't know that number. Okay. There have been a number of significant infrastructure projects either recently completed or underway, including the expansion of Dartmouth General, the expansion of the Emergency Department on South Shore Regional, the new cancer care facility in Bears Lake, a new new collaborative health centers in the Sydney area, and the replacement of QE2. There's a lot going on. Yeah. How do you anticipate these new facilities will help improve uh, health care delivery in the province? You know, it's um. So I've pretty much I, I can't say I've been in every single site, but I have been in a lot of sites. Uh, I've been around the province three times, so I've done sort of three tours of duty, and uh, some are just amazing. You know, newer, but even some of our older, particularly in in smaller communities, they're just so well maintained and they're just beautiful. Uh, then we get into other sites and and. You know, like the old one of the oldest facilities here in Halifax. You know, the Victoria General is has definitely seen better days. Air, air complaints, water complaints. So, at a minimum, as we are able to upgrade and you know completely change out, it will be certainly fresher, newer, feel better. People are happier to work there. Patients have a better experience. But we also have the ability to install new tech new technologies that can make something you know more efficient. Um, as as a patient is admitted to the hospital and then later discharged, we have um, you know if I think of the Bears Lake which you mentioned that's opening on November twenty, and you know I'm really excited that's that particular facility on budget on time more or less and what it will have is it's it's a services center so there will be an eye clinic there's dialysis there there's diagnostic imaging there's laboratory and there's also uh, a primary health care uh, facility I think it, it could be an urgent care center and also also uh, med medical surgical clinics so workups and so forth so it's really a service geared spot and what What's I think will be helpful about it is first of all the parking, secondly the access. So you're coming in from Bridgewater, Chester, the 103. It's right there off the highway. You're coming in from Sackville. It's right there off the highway. Or you're coming in from you know Truro area, uh, coming in the 102. It's the same. Like it's in a very good location for access, such that people don't have to come all the way downtown and be fighting traffic and that's got its own there's upside there because of course Halifax is growing so fast it's um it's not as easy to get around as it once was so I think for people coming in from outside of the city I think that's a positive and I'm excited about it so you know our, our challenge around the builds is just getting building completed fast enough for the growth in our population and you know this well but um, you know, we've had 50,000 newcomers in Central Zone over the past, I'm going to say, two, two, two and a half, three years, just in the Central Zone. Like, that's a lot of people. And servicing that, um, you know, 
So we go back to schools, we go back to health services, but, but uh, long-term care homes and so forth. We are... Um, we can't do it fast enough, so we have to find the ways anyway, which which enables us to stretch our resources, whether they be human or physical, to find ways to deal with the growth. So I think it will be good, but I'm pretty impatient to get to that point because I, I actually worry that uh, it's it's not even going to be enough, even once it's done. Like I worry that this that the soon as soon as things start happening, it's already obsolete, and you know there's. A good example that I that I have taken to heart for sure. When the new um, Halifax Infirmary was built, so I don't know, around the like around 2000, 99, 2000, If you can believe it, the final plans they took out a hundred beds. They took out a hundred beds because the projection of the time was decreased population. I would dearly love those hundred beds back in that facility today. So I mean, you know, think about that. And and the other challenge, and again, this is um, this is OECD data, but OECD data would show you that Canada uh, writ large is underbedded, so to speak. So we don't, you know, in theory, we don't have enough hospital beds to support our population. So what I hear every day when I come to work is beds, 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 beds. It doesn't matter what the issue is. Karen, we need more beds, 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 beds. We need beds. Hard to get people in when we can't get people out. And that gets into a whole a whole uh, challenge around our healthcare system. But it is largely driven by beds. So we're going to come back to the question of beds and population growth. Of course, the premier wants 2 million in the province by 2060. But before we get there, I wanted to ask you, we've talked a bit today about recruitment. You're doing some interesting things in terms of bonuses and other things. Um, Nova Scotia ranks third in the country for the number of enrolled health folks enrolled in uh, post-secondary programs related to health. So you seem to have a pretty good talent pipeline locally. Yeah. So what are you doing to recruit and retain healthcare workers? You name it, we're doing it. Um, so, to you know, let me just get my head around that. So, we've increased a lot of seats. So we've we've increased the nursing seats in the province. So at Saint Avex, at Dalhousie, seats this year at um, Acadia in partnership with CBU. CBU we've increased. So where there's the physical ability to increase seats, certainly on the nursing side, we've done that. Uh, there has been the announcement of a new medical school campus at Cape Breton University in conjunction with Dalhousie University. I think that will be very positive. We've started a new program altogether for physician assistants, which is the first or the only program this side of um, Toronto, I believe. And I think that that will be of critical importance going forward. Uh, Two-year program, post a degree, uh, increase you know, seat, this number of CCA seats, increased paramedics. I mean, you, wherever we can increase the seats, uh, allied healthcare workers, uh, programs, various programs at Dalhousie, so medical lab techs, uh, MRTs, you know, wherever we can do it, we're doing it. A lot of things on the go within the province with respect to uh, recruitment, and, you know, I could go on at length with regard to international recruitment as well. So, you know, you may have heard 
uh, our College of Nursing, which as a result of streamlining has most recently uh, noted having received over 18,000 applications of internationally educated nurses who are looking to be licensed to work in the province of Nova Scotia. So that's something to write home about. Lots of good work obviously be done on the recruitment side. It's all very encouraging. Uh, you know, we already talked that, you know, primary care is changing. The era of the family doctor practicing alone is ending and the move to more collaborative group practices is increasing. I've been of the personal opinion that governments really all across the country have not done a good enough job changing the expectation of the general public with regard to access to primary care and the promise that everybody should have their own family doctor is really no longer practical. I guess the question is, what are you doing to prepare Nova Scotians to the reality that, well, they may have access to primary care. It may not, may, not, may not always be with the same doctor, but with a group of doctors or even virtual care. Correct. You know, you've just laid out what the future holds. And that's not just in Nova Scotia, that's across the country and beyond. Um, and there are many different reasons for that. But starting with the med student and the, you know, family hmm. doctor resident, um, students who are in med school today, and I'm generalizing, you know, they, they, they want to work in a collaborative manner. They do not want to have an office all by themselves and, you know, worrying about all of the things that a family physician would have to worry about all by, all by him or herself. They're used to working in teams. They want to work in teams. And we're seeing this, you know, this is not just a Nova Scotian phenomenon. So the name that people seem to galvanate or uh, what's the word I want, uh, the name that people go to is Health Home. And so this would be a place, could be physical, could be virtual, it could be all in one place, it could be bits across your community, but a health home comprising of or comprised of a physician, a family doctor, could be a nurse practitioner, it could be a social worker, an osteopath, a physio, could, in, could even include a pharmacist. So it could be any combination of healthcare worker and, and largely dependent on the needs of a particular community. So not every community is the same. The demographics could be different. The socio-demographics, the socio-economic requirements of a community could be different from place to place to place. And so, um, you know, we have, we do have a number of collaborative clinics in the province of Nova Scotia. I think there's maybe an order of a hundred that are uh, operated through Nova Scotia Health. And another number which we are supporting to grow as a clinic. I think there's another 20 or 30. So by saying supporting to grow, I mean we may be putting a nurse practitioner with them or some other form of clinician that's that's going to be geared to that clinic and to that community. So the idea is you belong to the health home, not necessarily to this physician or this nurse practitioner, but if you need to see the dietitian or you need to see the physiotherapist, they're there. They're part of your health home and your record, your your medical record belongs to the health home. So a physician may come or go, the physiotherapist may come or go, etc. 
your record is there and that's your home and so you know that is the wave of the future it's a big big change and you know when I look at um, our demographic for sure in Nova Scotia but across the country you know with our aging population this is a this is a big change. It's a different way of, of thinking about uh, primary health care. So that's one component. The second component, you know, you mentioned virtual. If I look at the last um, two years, the last 26 months, we've created so many new pathways. We talked already about the pharmacy, so we we have a you know a very robust uh, pathway to pharmacies. Similarly, mobile clinics that are, you know, traveling across Nova Scotia uh, to meet the needs of populations in their community. Thirdly, we have the virtual care. And, you know, I'm really excited about the virtual care component of our offering because we are investing for Nova Scotia to make it available to those beyond just the need a family practice list so that there will be virtual care available for all whether you have a family doctor or you do not you may be a little it may look a little different you know uh, if you have a family doctor you may not get complete open access to it but you will have access to it and it will be part of our Nova Scotia uh, publicly funded health system and so, you know, if I look at the numbers, um, last month, last month, there were 58,000, 58,000 appointments completed outside of family physicians. So I'm talking about the mobile clinics, the virtual, and the pharmacies. Okay, 58,000. So, like, that's a massive number. And these are people who may otherwise be going to our emergency department. So, you know, at the end of the day, um, I think that we, you know, I feel very, I feel a big responsibility, and I know Nova Scotia Health Across the Board does as well, to find ways to explain to Nova Scotians the different pathways that are available. And so last week, uh, our Premier announced the... Um, the launch of Your Health Nova Scotia. And Your Health Nova Scotia is a mobile app, which you can also download on your computer, whereby you have in the palm of your hand the ability to find health services close to you, where you have the ability to find educational um items pertaining to let's just say healthy living uh, or diabetes management or physical activity what have you uh, educational components as well as um, there there is a chat tool that navigates you to the right pathway of care so I'm very excited about this I think that I, I guarantee you we are the first in the country to have such an extensive um, offering uh, by way of an app in the palm of the hand and so the, the next challenge will be to collect the data in relation to the app to make sure that we are you know giving people what they need to um, take the path that they want when they want it so the primary 
purpose of the app, you know, it's really threefold as far as I'm concerned. Number one is to uh, help to divert away from EDs unless absolute, unless it really is an emergency. Uh, secondly, to educate Nova Scotians as to our various pathways to care. And thirdly is to, um, to help to start the culture change that we need in Nova Scotia and across the country as to the different ways that primary health care will be delivered into the future. Karen, do you envision any time in the near future when people will have access to their own personal electronic health data? Yes, yes, I do. And actually, I, you know, I hate to be, um, I'm going to say within the next one year. Because we're we're already trialing something. Uh, no, let me take that back. We're not trialing. We're 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 mapping our proof of concept that will actually you know put your records in the palm of your hand in the same way that I just described your health Nova Scotia giving you care navigation. We're we're also in the process of putting something together that will put your you know it's your X-rays, it's your blood, it's your you know you name it. It's in the palm of your hand. And that's what people want. People want control. They want to feel like they have some kind of control over their themselves and their health and their choices. And uh, so we are very driven to get these things in the hands of Nova Scotians to help them to, to, to regain that feeling of control. So can you tell us a little bit about the role of urgent care centers to take the pressure off emergency rooms? What's, the, what's going on there? Yeah, so we, so I don't know, we have, I think, eight, eight or 12, uh, 11 maybe in Nova Scotia right now. Uh, North Sydney, uh, Pugwash, uh, I think we're putting one in at the Bears Lake Centre. Um, and basically, the role of the urgent care centre is, you know, we, we have primary health care, we have emergency care, but we have a lot of things in the middle that might need attention within the next two, three days, but they're not, you know, an immediate um, heart attack or a stroke or some other, you know, serious emergency that requires attention right here, right now. And uh, the urgent care center is a way to get people that care without them having to sit in an emergency room for you know two hours five hours eight hours so we're also identifying communities where for whatever reason they may not have the human resources to actually staff an, an emergency department fully yet you know we can't strand communities across our province so we look for ways that we can stabilize the care which is offered uh, recognizing you know urgent care is not em emergency care so we have to be really careful in explaining these things to people and so that they understand you know I have this I need to go here for this I need to go here for that so that's basically what they do and you know again we, we're having really good success it's a, it's a, it is a piece. It's not a whole, it's a piece. And, you know, I, I really, one of the things I worry about is we can't be everything to everyone. Like we, we don't have the, we don't have the human resources. We do not have the human capital to be everything to everyone. So we have to make smart choices. We have to be making informed choices. And it's not a one-way street. It's a two-way street. P people have to 
you know, they have to learn and then they have to use that learning to make a smart choice for themselves. And part of the challenge is to, you know, to help people to learn these things. I just want to mention that, uh, you know, I had proposed an economic hub strategy for Atlantic Canada's way of uh, uh, delivering better services. I think in Nova Scotia, there are uh, sort of 10 centers. Um, I don't, I can't remember the number of emergency rooms that are in the province. I think the last time I looked, it was close to 30 or more. And, you know, uh, those 10 centers served uh, 90 plus percent of the population within a half hour drive. And it sounds to me that what you're doing, correct me if I'm wrong, that you're turning some of those emergency rooms into urgent the care centers and reducing the number of emergency rooms to have better service overall. Is that right? More or less. You know, I think just to kind of add to that, we we have eight regional hospitals in Nova Scotia mm -hmm. and the regional hospitals, you know, I mean, that's the, they are definitely jewels that we have to protect, support, enhance. We have to, right. they have right. to be, they have to be the best that they can be. And, you know, we've seen over the past number of years, um, particularly coming out of the pandemic with a number of, you know, healthcare professionals leaving the sector, we've had to do some redeployment. Uh, and, you know, you're, you're hitting at it right there. But the reason is it's not to take away. On the contrary, it's to make sure that the regional centers have what they need to be able to provide the care that we have to be able to provide in, in our province. So, you know, that's what I look at and that's what I definitely worry about. So, Karen, did you just cue the ambulance there? I heard <laughs> nice touch. Uh, I'm going to kick it back to Don because we're now entering record territory for length of podcasts. We really yeah. appreciate your time. But I'll, I'll turn it back to Don to wrap it up. No, no, no. Just we had we have lots of questions that we could ask, but I, let, let me just kind of uh, just give you a, a one more chance to kind of uh, deal with. I guess one of the big public issues is. Uh, you know, when will when will we expect to see material reductions in the numbers of those without a doctor? Even with a growing population, it makes it hard when you when you're adding thirty thousand people or plus a year to the province. That goes onto the wait list automatically. Uh, so it, it's you know you've got a growing demand, uh, but you know there's a lot of pent up uh, desire for people to have access to primary care. Um, and, you know, those numbers have been stubbornly high for a long time, Karen. Uh, you know, what can you say uh, on that uh, topic? I think, you know, I get, I'll go back to what I've said. Um, you know, for me personally, access to primary care is, it's, you know, pretty close to goal number one, if not goal number one. Because everything mm -hmm. flows, everything flows from good primary care. You know, or the health of a, a healthy population flows from good primary care. So we are very committed to it and looking for every which way to do it. But it, it may very well be that it is not going to be a doctor for every Nova Scotian. It is going to be that health home. It's not that there will not be primary care. On the contrary, it's going to look different. So I think we have a lot of work to do to uh, help Nova Scotians to understand it's not that it's better or worse, it's different. 
And, um, you know, having said that, of course, we want as many family physicians as we can reasonably attract to Nova Scotia. We've historically done well. It's a great place to live. It's continuing to be a sought-after place. You know, the residents that are coming out of Dalhousie Medical School, they're choosing Nova Scotia to stay and work, which is great news. Um, we're, re we're recruiting and attracting from outside of our province. So that's going to be an everyday full job to continue to recruit and attract and onboard uh, physicians. I mean, that just, it's never going away. And in the meantime, we will continue to work on creating those health homes and to help Nova Scotians to learn that there are different ways to accomplish uh, what they need to do with respect to their own health. You know, one thing we didn't talk about, and I should have probably mentioned it, um, we, we've had a red tape reduction group working now for, I don't know, I'm going to say two years, more or less. And that group, so comprised of a number of deputy ministers uh, and others, uh, Doctors Nova Scotia, Nova Scotia Health, IWK, through the work of the committee has identified 400,000 hours of red tape, so to speak, that can be taken out of different kinds of systems. So not just the health, but some is out of community services, for example. Some is out of, you know, insurance companies, the kinds of forms that they are requiring physicians to fill out. So it's not just recruiting. It's doing really smart things. So I, I used to have this number at the top of my head. I don't have it. But, well, let's just say 400,000 hours and a physician, a family physician, um, you know, I'd have to do that math, but that's, it's quite a few doctors if we were to translate those hours into people. So, right. so there's just different ways to do it. And, you know, a little example that we did at Nova Scotia Health, like we do not require sick notes for less than a five day absence. Like it seems kind of a no brainer, but you know, it was the case. You had to have a sick note. Well, you don't need a sick note anymore. And the province has brought in legislation to um, do the same kind of thing for Nova Scotia employers. So, like, all of these times and hours that are given back to the system enable physicians to see more patients or to have a quality of life that helps them to stay in the job as a family physician as opposed to have burnout and, and want to retire early or, or seek another job. So, you know, it's not one thing, it's many things. And I am excited about the fact that, you know, we're open to all of these possibilities. The job is to, you know, identify the red tape, get rid of the red tape, get rid of the hurdles, and to enable people to, to be the best that they can be. Karen, we want to thank you for joining us today on the Insights Podcast. Uh, we appreciate your candor. You're, you're obviously passionate about what you're doing here and excited about these changes that you're making as a system. So we really appreciate that. We wish you all, every success as you uh, continue to work on reforming and strengthening healthcare in Nova Scotia. Well, thanks, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat and uh, and to you know hear hear your questions too, because that always enables me to open my mind to what I should be doing differently or better. Thanks a lot, Karen. Listening to the Insights Podcast from the Acadia Broadcasting Corporation. Follow the show and listen to past episodes on your favorite podcast platform, like Apple or Spotify. If you've enjoyed the show, why not recommend it to a friend? 
Don and David will be back next week with another deep dive into some key issues in Atlantic Canada.